Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. When I came across our next guest, Dr. Seema Yasmin, I thought no way could she be a medical doctor as her career was so vastly different from any of my colleagues I've come across in the UK. An East Londoner at heart, she spent her teenage years enjoying life and volunteering. She studied biochem at Queen Mary's University, followed by a medical degree at the University of Cambridge. She has since found herself in different parts of the world, including Botswana and various states in America. Her career took a new turn when she studied journalism at the University of Toronto. She's also taught at the University of Texas and Stanford Medical School. In just a few months' time, she'll be starting a new role as the director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative and a professor in the medical school. Hello, Dr. Seema Yasmin. Hello. <laughs> I had to take one of my earrings out because it was tied to her under the And whilst headphones. you were doing that, I was taking a breath after saying all the jobs that you've had over Aww. the past years. I'm feeling really happy right now and giving myself permission to be proud of myself, yeah. which I think often as women, we're like, yeah, I've done some things. It's all right. Yeah, it's good. But now I'm like, no, I've done some really good things and I'm going to give myself permission to celebrate. Yeah. And you've got to because even the path that you've taken isn't, I'm sure when you were like 17 doing your volunteering work, you were just not thinking how far that you could take this thing. Because no one tells you no, that, right? And especially like the family that I grew up in, I love my family, but it's not academically oriented at all. Okay. So I think oftentimes when you are you go to medical school and you're a doctor, you're surrounded by people who, mummy's a doctor, mm. daddy's a doctor, always knew I was going to be a doctor. I was the first one in my family and most people didn't even go to university. So it's like, yes, I've done some things that not only am I proud of, but it took a lot of courage to yeah, do some totally, of those things. Of course. And also courage to step off the conveyor belt because I mm-hmm. haven't done what Oh, that's most... like my favorite topic. Oh, yeah? Oh, mine too. <laughs> Come on, let's talk about this. Definitely, it takes a lot of courage and you can look back and be proud of yourself like I am. But at the time, mm-hmm. there was a lot of doubt. Am I doing the right thing? I'm going to disappoint people. My mentors are going to be like, what is she doing? How are you taking this career in yeah. this direction? And what? You're going to journalism school. So there was a lot of moments of, am I doing the right thing? But I'm still really glad I did it. Yeah. Check you out now. Yeah. Check me out. <laughs> check me out. I'm really happy. So let's dial back because we're sitting in Hackney at the moment. 
we're sitting in Mare Street. I'm in just... an unrecognizable hackney <laughs> to me because I grew up two minutes from where we are and we are in the Mare Street market and it is extremely poncy and it's very white and this is not the hackney mm. I grew up in. So it's a culture shock for me every time I come back that it's whiter and whiter and it's just so different. So different. It's unbelievable. Like, John, our producer, was just telling us that this was the job center. Yeah, this 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 is where the bus used to stop, where I used <laughs> to get off um, when I was going to college every day. And yeah, he, John is right. This used to be the job center. And now it's like a hipster coffee shop. Yeah, I'm sure the people who are looking for jobs are not working here right now. Uh, no, <laughs> they, they've been priced out, to be real. And yeah. I have so many friends I grew up with who lived in council flats around here. They live in Enfield or even further out yes. now because it's too expensive. Completely, completely. And that's even with me. Lots of our family friends used to live around this area. And growing up, we used to like literally stay in their houses because our family or their parents didn't want us going outside, hanging but you around know with what? the kids. I loved growing up here. Oh, did it you? was fun and it was sometimes a little dangerous, but it was yeah. nowhere near as dangerous as many people thought it was. I was gonna was. say that as well though. Yeah. I loved growing up. The perception up here. of what Hackney was is so different to what the perception is now. People had no clue what it was like then actually because they were just throwing a lot of perceptions our way and yeah. it wasn't like that to live. It was really nice to live it. There was community. Yeah. Community is everything. It is. It's what kept me going. So let's go all the way back to yeah. when you were growing up here. Yes. So tell me, so you said that you didn't come from a medical background. What That's was it that all. what was it that caused you to want to study medicine or even biochem in the first place? I mean, I didn't really want to to begin <laughs> with. When I was about 14, I started volunteering at this charity that was for teenagers who were infected with HIV mm. or who had close family members who had HIV. And I didn't even get interested in that from the medical HIV side. Yes. It was more that wait, there's this microscopic thing in these teenagers' blood. Mm. And because of that thing that no one can see, they're getting bullied. They have yeah. to keep secrets from their own family members. It was all that social side of it that made me really angry mm. and also made me really interested in how health can be this sociological thing as well as this physical well-being Completely. thing. So I started doing that for voluntary work and I really loved it. it was and how charity. did you come across the charity in the first place? My mum at the time was working for this organisation called the NARS Project in West London, which was for people of Middle Eastern, North African and South Asian descent who had HIV. Mm -hmm. And so she was a caseworker, helping them sort out their medical care, immigration stuff. And that was what taught me that when you have HIV, it's not just the pills you have to be worried about. Mm -hmm. It exacerbates everything else that's going on oh, in your completely. life, whether that's poverty and housing issues mm -hmm. and visas. And I didn't know that as a 14 year old. Heard about Body and Soul and loved that they were one of the few that was doing this young people-centered care. Yeah. And it was just an amazing organization. So I volunteered at Body and Soul for about four or five years and came into contact with a lot of doctors that way because I would do hospital visits with the young people and stuff like that. And a lot of the doctors were really crappy and were <laughs> some of them were amazing, I have to say. But a lot of them inspired, like, I could do this better than you. Like, why yeah, are you totally. talking to them like that for? And I did think about medicine then. But I have to say, I did really well in my GCSEs and I did not do well in my A-levels. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring this up because, you know, you gave this really kind and lovely introduction about mm -hmm. me. And this happens all the time when I go and talk at events and stuff. I need to be real and I want to be very real about the places I've messed up at yeah. and where I haven't been a golden child. So I did really well on my GCSEs, found them really easy. Mm -hmm. When it came to A-levels, I did really bad and I spent <laughs> three years at City Nisbet in college. So imagine all my friends left after two years and I was the little bum that was still hanging Just around trying to still get three A-levels. And it, I, I 
the grades I got were so bad that I don't even know. I can't remember what yeah. grades I got. Like you blanked it out. Somewhere it in your was memory. so bad. And I was just not interested in studying between the ages of 16 and yeah. 18. And I wish I'd known that it was okay to feel like that instead of just trying to like struggle along. And I hated A. I love sitting in Islington. It was a proper party college, yeah. but I didn't like A levels. <laughs> I was interested in you got other your uni things. Time out there. I did. And so after I did my three years of A levels, I went to America for a year mm-hmm. and then got a lot of partying out of my system and I needed to do that. And what, what were you in America for at the time? Was it volunteering at Harlem Hospital. Okay. Um, I did that for a little bit. And then a lot of the time I was just dusting around because I needed to. And I think we need to say that if you need to just get it out of your system or just do it when you're young or whenever you need to take a year out. Exactly. Um, And I'm glad I did that. But I do want to bring up that point because my CV, thankfully, and I worked hard, definitely Mm -hmm. have worked hard. My CV looks so lovely. It looks immaculate, you know. It looks so lovely. (laughs) But I want to put it out there that don't look at my CV or hear my story and be like, oh, I can't be like that. Actually, I've messed up a lot too Mm -hmm. and still rebounded. It's all right. I don't know how I got into Cambridge. With my (laughs) A-levels, I should not have. I say it's my ancestors' prayers because a lot of people have prayed very hard for me and I'm sure that's what it is. And it trickled down the generations. And that and having the audacity to apply. There you go. That's it. You know when I applied... If you don't put yourself in those spaces and you just... You've got to be in it to win it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whose catchphrase was that. I say that a lot in America and I'm like, oh, it's some British thing. I make up a lot of stuff. And you're like, yeah, you're on the site laughing. (laughs) Yeah, no, they laugh with me. They probably can't understand what I'm saying. Um, But you have to apply for stuff and it takes some nerve. Mm -hmm. When I applied for Cambridge, there's a lot of people I didn't tell, even good friends, because I knew their reaction would be, it's going to be so hard. Mm. Oh my God, you're trying to go to Cambridge. I just told a few people that I knew would be like my army, like my backup and my like cheerleading team. And somehow I got in and I'm so glad I had the nerve to apply. Yeah. And how do you, did you find your experience at Cambridge compared to Queen Mary's? Oh my Was it well different? Goodness. It was completely different. It's so weird to think that. It takes about an hour or something to get to Cambridge mm-hmm. on it's the train from East London, right? It's not far. You could drive it quite quickly. It's a different world. Mm-hmm. I'd never met so many Hermione's and Henriettas and yeah. Rupert's. And mm-hmm. it was... What the people I met there were sometimes, to me, they were almost caricatures yeah. of middle upper class people I was like oh my gosh that saying about talking with plums in your mouth that's true it sounds like you've got three plums I don't know what you're saying I remember this conversation in the first week of medical school where some of us are talking about what's a good student bank account to get Mm -hmm. I had just joined NatWest because they had like this no fee overdraft thing exactly and they were giving that free popcorn machine (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so I was like I'll go in NatWest I want some popcorn and this other girl said that she banked with coots I'd never heard You're of lying. Coots. And somebody would nudge me in that when I was saying, what is that? And they were like, that's who the Royal Family bank with. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, do they have like a no fee overdraft <laughs> thing? Because I don't like, know. Where's the popcorn machine <laughs> Yeah. Do they give you little freebies? <laughs> so it was a completely different world. And you know the thing that broke my heart in the first year mm-hmm. is that the brown and black, like the ethnic minority people I met yeah. were often so, I think, as dear in the headlights as me. Okay that they weren't so good to build community with. Mm. I think some of them were like, I don't want another brown person talking to me. I'm just trying to fit in. So that first year, I found it really hard at Cambridge. Every weekend, I used to come back to London. Did you ever find your tribe in Cambridge? Oh my God, yes. Okay. So the first year was hard, right? And every weekend, I would come back to London, which didn't help the cause, but I just needed like a (laughs) dose of reality and just to get out of that after a hard week. Mm. In the second year, it just took me time. In the second year, I found my people. I found like real down to earth Asian black people who weren't trying to put on airs who weren't worried about 
being too real Mm -hmm. and they were my survival system through the next three years they were amazing especially I'm from a Muslim background yeah I'm Muslim but I'm not as pious as many people so I wasn't going to Islamic society stuff Mm -hmm. I was like oh they're gonna tell me off they're not wearing a hijab they're gonna judge me that ended up being my lifeline because they were the most non-judgmental Muslims I've ever met and they were just Come around and eat. Let's break fast together. <laughs> a lot of them were medics. We would do little revision sessions. I've broken fast with so, so many of my Muslim friends all the time. We love to eat. Why not? We needed it. Exactly. Medical school is hard. It is hard. It is hard. But you know what? That's the reason I applied to Cambridge because I knew wherever I went, it was going to be a slog. Medicine's yeah. not easy anywhere. But particularly for someone who's doing a four-year degree, a shortened degree. That's right. So I did it. More. Yeah. So I did medicine after biochem and I didn't want to do five or six years, whatever. So I applied for the graduate fast track course. So it was a super small group within the subset. I think there was 18 of us, mm-hmm. I think. And it, yeah, it was more intense. But I was ready for it. You know, I was 23 at the time. And the other people I met outside of that group were like my survival system. So it's interesting. So listening to like your story, it's actually quite similar to my other co- my co-host, Suba's story. Oh, yeah. So she was talking about how she applied for medicine, wasn't really sure if she was going to get it anyway, um, obviously got into med school, went to King's, absolutely loved her time at King's. And she thought actually being a doctor was kind of the the be all and end all at one point. And then she realized, oh gosh, I've got to like choose a specialty. Oh Mm. gosh, I've got to like figure out where my career is going. And she said she's only just started to come into that thinking at the moment. It takes a minute, right? But there's a lot of pressure. I remember one time being in theater, Mm. I think during OBS and gynae rotation and the surgeon's doing this hysterectomy and it's like, so what do you want to do after med school? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, you know, I'm still thinking about different specialties, whatever, hadn't decided, kept changing Mm -hmm. my mind. And then he was like, no, but you must know whether it's like medicine or you're going to be a medical, you're going to be a surgeon. surgeon. I was like, I don't know. And he just was properly harassing me. Like, no, choose, like, choose now. I'm like, no, like, Like, why? I cannot choose right now. You know, like, while you're pulling out this woman's uterus, like, I I don't know. I need a, a year. I need a, like more you're than like, five. Can you just focus on this, her user, right. please? This is a very high pressure situation. You're not making it any easier while I'm trying so to like did retract. You ever make, did you ever come to that decision whether you wanted to go into medicine, surgery or what you're doing now? I kept changing my mind. Okay. There was a point where I wanted to be a surgeon. And I think that was partly because it was so male dominated. And I was like, I'm going to change it. Yeah. You know, give me yeah, a challenge and I'll be that one stubborn person that's like, no, I can do it. Um, and then I was like, oh, surgery looks a bit boring, actually, because it's the same thing over it's and over. And to be long. a really good surgeon, yeah. you just need to be good at doing the and same thing over and over. And practicing and practicing. Yeah, and I was like, nah, that's not happening. I knew I loved public health, but it was such a weird, blurry, gray area in England. Right when I was graduating, there was a new training path for public health physicians in the NHS. Okay. And it sounded so hit and miss. And it sounded like we were going to be guinea pigs. I was like, I don't know, I'll just go do F1. Came back from Cambridge to Hackney because I had to come back home. I worked at Homerton. <laughs> loved it, loved it. It was amazing. I used to get, walked to work every day. It was the best, uh, especially after night shift. That's shifts. so ideal, isn't it? It is. I, you don't, I don't know. I couldn't yeah. do a commute after that. But So I loved being at Homerton. It was like being home again. I was feeling like I got to serve in my community. Yeah. And can I just say, the experience of working around your community is so good. Yeah. So Is I, that your experience too? Yeah, similar. So I studied in Manchester. And I never had the experience really of working around like other black nurses or like black doctors or just like a multicultural kind of like area. So I worked in North Mid for my last, my F2 year and I still work there now. And I absolutely just loved it. And I could just be myself with the, my yes. colleagues. I could be myself with my nurses. Yes. They understood my jokes. Yeah, it's they lovely. They brought me in food. But I had a lot. Like, oh, you it did? Was, it was what? great. It still That's is great. Cool. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, the food in Cambridge was not bad. I ate a lot of scones. But you know what I found at Homerton? Mm-hmm. The first 
prescription I ever signed as a proper doctor. Okay. Oh, I will never forget. It was Diamore for a patient with sickle cell. And it was such a high amount Mm. that I was like, it was during a night shift. And I was like, why is the nurse trying to get me struck off the GMC (laughs) before I'm like even properly on it? And I was like, how can you give that much morphine to like a 19 year old? And she was like, go look in his medical records. And I looked. And of course, then I started learning more about the management of sickle cell because Mm. we had so many patients with it in home. And so that was different to being in Cambridge or being in Bury St. Edmunds where I did some of my rotations. But I loved being here. I loved the patient population. I loved being in my community. And I also started to get frustrated during during that year. Mm. And what were your frustrations around? That even though the NHS is better than many other medical systems in the world, I felt like we were operating a revolving door. Okay. So patients would come in and I felt like we were patching them up well enough to send them out again. Mm -hmm. And then I'd see them the next day, week, month, couple months later. Mm -hmm. Like I would go into the ACU or A&E, look at the board and be like, oh yeah, it's her again. Mm -hmm. I wonder how she's doing. Does she find her home yet? Or And I would get my hand slapped metaphorically by mm-hmm. consultants when I would get caught on the phone trying to find housing for a patient. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, wait, why I'm like, am I'm I... I'm the same person, you know. I Really? Yeah, and yeah. I, you know what I found I resented was like being told off and being told, you're a doctor, you're not a social worker. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, isn't that a bit of a problem if we can't be doing okay. a bit of the both? Because how am I sending this man home with two weeks worth of antibiotics that I want him to take and not become resistant to? And I know he sleeps on a park bench and I know it. That's we all it. know it. And I walk past him sleeping on the park bench on my way home. Mm-hmm. How can we not get him housing? How is that not part of his medical care? Yeah. There was another time where I had a Ghanaian young man as a patient who was in England to study and he'd overstayed his student visa, Mm. had a wife here, had two lovely daughters, and he had TB meningitis. He was so sick. We pumped him with so much steroids that we made him diabetic and a bit insane. That's crazy. He actually wandered off the hospital one day. It was really bad. Mm. But the thing that struck me about him is we were so aggressively treating his meningitis and his TB as we should have been. He had a mouthful of black tea. How was I not allowed to get a dentist involved? No, that's wild. He had infection in yeah. his mouth. How was that? But it was like, no, the mouth is not your purview. That's not your business. And you're Why like, are you? This is definitely. I'm like, can we not treat the whole the person? person? Yeah. So I was sharing these frustrations with people, and one of my mum's friends was like. You, you sound like you're more interested in public health because mm-hmm. public health is getting at the root of why someone ends up in the hospital in the first place. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, I want to think about those social issues that actually are legitimate medical issues. Mm-hmm. And then she told me about this thing called the Epidemic Intelligence Service okay. in Atlanta. And what based... did your mom's friend do? How can She was a this? doctor. So my mom's not a doctor, but okay. she she was friends with this woman through um, the HIV world. She yeah, met her at conference. She's been doing. And this woman, Lynn Paxton, she's amazing. I adore her. She still lives in Atlanta, I think. And Lynn said to me, there's this thing called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. They don't let many non-Americans in because it's a branch of the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. But it's what you would be really good at. She said, I did it years ago. You'd be really good at it. And it's basically the federal government in America has this team, the EIS, mm-hmm. who are their team of medical sleuths, if you like. They're disease detectives. Okay. They're first responders when there's an outbreak, whether that. it's disease Ebola detective. or whatever. <laughs> so I applied again, had okay. the nerve to apply, knowing that they don't really let many non-Americans in. And I got in. So after I finished my F1, I went to Botswana to work for a few months. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the U.S. to work in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And that was my kind of first career transition point yeah. from being a hospital doctor to being a public health doctor, where my patient was no longer an individual. My mm-hmm. patient was a whole community, a yeah. whole state. Yeah. Um, 
any whole population that was affected by an illness and outbreak that was going on. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. And at that time, did you know that you were making a move from just direct patient care? Or I knew it. Ser- and I was a bit provision. nervous about okay. it. And I was really nervous about yeah. leaving the NHS because I got that grant thing in medical school, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't pay my tuition, which was a lot less than it is now anyway. Yeah, I was going to say. Like- it was £1,100 a year back <laughs> yeah. then. But I got that NHS grant thing I can't remember what it was like a scholarship basically Mm -hmm. and so there's that feeling of oh the UK government has invested a lot of money in me becoming (laughs) a doctor and I'm supposed to serve here I don't feel bad about it now because I continued serving on a global scale and I think it's all connected but it was a lot of bravery and saying I know Mm -hmm. everyone's going into F2 and applying for stuff that they should be and this is what you're supposed to do Mm -hmm. I am stepping off and I don't know how this is gonna go I'm just gonna try it because the epidemic intelligence service sounds so exciting and what I want our listeners to also understand is the time that you took this step off the conveyor belt is so different to it now so after F2 year essentially they do this survey amongst all the doctors and they see all where they're going and I know this is after your F1 year but um now I think it's about 50% of people don't go straight into training whereas it was different last year it was 40% the year before it was like 25% by the time when you did it I'm sure we're talking a few percent of people weren't doing that so oh yeah I don't know anyone else who was Mm. doing that I knew one girl from Cambridge actually who didn't do any clinical training and went straight from medicine to public health that she went to do a master's and became an academic but I knew I wanted some clinical experience I wanted to work here that's also a very traditional way of doing it as well which one um, to just go into another degree and just get your master's in public yeah, health and, and then PhD. do academia completely I'm really glad I did my F1 year because otherwise to me medical school is akin to like practicing driving mm-hmm. but never being in the driver's seat yeah. on your own so like I started at Homan and this is a thing they need to change because it was terrible <laughs> my first ever shift as a doctor was a night shift wild it's stupid it's so, so I remember and I had sense. the crash bleep and I remember it going off and it's saying where I needed to go. And I was running down the corridor. You better not run too fast to be the first No, person. I was shouting at people saying, where is this? Where is Lloyd Ward? I'm running. I don't know what direction I'm going in. Someone's having a heart attack. I don't know. No, I wasn't scared about being the first one there. I was scared about not ever getting there. I didn't know where I was going. So I didn't really have an orientation because I started on a night shift. And then I had to sign that crap load of dimorph for this mm. young man and I was like oh my god I'm gonna get struck off so it was really <laughs> I've even done a day shift do you know what imagine? I mean but you know what clinical training is amazing for learning that you learn some really like high level stuff in medical mm. school and when it comes down to it in in clinical practice can you stop someone's nausea it, you know it. it comes down to stuff like that <laughs> like can you remember these basic things I love looking after people yeah. I loved that part of it but I also loved... it gives you an appreciation of their real life as well doesn't it yes and that's the privileged part of medicine that you're mm. meeting someone maybe on the worst day of their entire life and it's your job to build a relationship get information out of them get them to trust you get them to tell you things that no one's ever 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 told you and I loved that about it I also love doing lumbar punctures and draining abscesses I found those things I know it sounds weird like, but I found them very satisfying <laughs> I know. I'm like oh does that hurt because now I can drain it and you're gonna feel relief immediately <laughs> I really love doing lumbar punctures as well. But you know what? Now that I'm doing journalism, there's so many parallels. I know we'll get to that in a minute, but there's so many parallels with Mm. you meeting somebody as a journalist, often at a time of crisis, when they don't want to talk to other people and you want their story. Mm -hmm. And that's a privilege too. And I love that about journalism as well. So there are so many ways I can take this conversation. I'm just going to go back because we sidetracked a little bit from the epidemiology intelligence service. So tell me a little bit more about that and where that took you next. It was a wild job. It was amazing. So basically, 
you didn't know what you were going to be doing from day to day or week to week. You would get the call. There's an outbreak of flesh eating bacteria in the Navajo Nation. You're going to go. And you would just have to rock up, drive for like six hours, which I'd never done. And drive in a car where everything's on the wrong side of the car. That was quite scary for me. I thought I was going to die on the way to that epidemic. But I loved it. I love being in the situation where there's a crisis, where you're building trust. I got to see parts of America I don't think I would ever have seen. Yeah. I went to Mexico for an outbreak. I got sent to Kenya. It was an amazing two years. I loved it. And also during that point, I had another one of those feelings of, am I doing enough? And that actually happened during the outbreak of flesh-eating bacteria in the Navajo Nation. And I rocked up. And one of the first things you do in an epidemic is you do case finding. You're trying to find others who may be infected. And you're trying to build a network, okay. a map, a spider's web. Mm -hmm. Who knows who, who gave the infection to who? So we're on this American Indian reservation. People are dying from this infection. They're losing their limbs. They're having amputations. People in the ICU, septic. And as I'm going door to door, I'm asking people... Do you have these symptoms? Do you know anyone that has these symptoms? Mm. And people are telling me that they're scared. And this one woman, when she opens the door, she says to me, I'm so worried mm. about this outbreak. I'm scared my kids are going to get sick. How do I protect them? Mm. And I was like, well, that part is easy. Like the figuring out how this is spreading is hard, but that part is easy. Just make sure while the outbreak's going on that you and your kids wash your hands loads. Yeah. Just make sure that you have really good hand hygiene. And she's looking at me with a blank face. And I'm like, what? what's happening? And she goes with what water? And they did not have running water on this massive mm. reservation. They didn't have toilets that flushed. And I thought to myself, I've driven five That's or mad. six hours from Phoenix, Arizona, which is a massive city yeah. with Chanel stores and spa mm. resorts, and it's beautiful, to a place that is a sovereign nation, but it's still in America, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's no running water. And I was like, no wonder this outbreak is spreading. This bacteria is spreading because people don't have the basics. Mm -hmm. They don't have freaking running water. And I thought to myself, do people know this? Am I just ignorant? Do people know and not care? Mm -hmm. Or is it a case of people don't realize this is how bad it is mm -hmm. and this is how much oppression there is? And I thought that it's good being a physician. It's good being a public health physician. It's good being an outbreak responder. It's amazing being a disease detective, yeah. but I need to tell people stories. and I need to mm -hmm. learn how to do that. And that's when I decided I was going to go to journalism school. Dope. So when you were talking about storytelling and actually the importance of storytelling, now this has like just been sat in my mind for the past week now. So last week I went to a conference called Women in Academic Medicine and Professor Jane Dacre, who it was or is the um, president of the Royal Society of Medicine, she was talking about all the things that she wants to change. And she says, when you're trying to change something in a public health or like a global level, you have to give a story because people will shut out as soon as you start giving statistics because it just doesn't affect people in the same way as storytelling does. Yeah, no so. one asks for a bedtime fact. You ask for a bedtime <laughs> story. Stories are sticky. They're juicy. They, they grab you and it, it's and personal. Mm -hmm. I, I, get, I get annoyed with the medical world for this sometimes that facts should be enough. You know, the WHO yesterday, I was at this conference called MisinfoCon, which is about information mm -hmm. disorder. And I was presenting about epidemics and also about epidemics of misinformation and how the two go okay, hand in hand okay. but while I was in the conference you know I was a bit addicted to Twitter so I was looking at my Twitter account Who and was the audience of the conference first of all oh internet people and information disorder experts <laughs> and hackers so there was there that's was so a dope. there was no public health people there yeah. really so that's why I was a bit nervous actually about my com about my presentation and a bit like how they're going to handle this but it went down really really well and I'm trying to in my new role which I'll talk about I really want to be placing myself and my research at the mm -hmm. intersection of 
public health, public yeah. health crises, medicine, science, and communication, Completely. storytelling, information disorder. Those things are so connected. But when I'm looking at my Twitter account yesterday, <laughs> I saw the World Health Organization's Twitter account said something about how in Europe, vaccination rates are really going down. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is the news. We know this. And they were like, where we present people with facts, mm-hmm. vaccination rates go back up. And I was like, I tweeted them back, like, how, where, show me the evidence. Not that I'm just trying to be like argumentative. I want the evidence because I've seen so much research that shows, you know, when people are like, don't want to vaccinate my kids, Mm -hmm. you show them pictures of children in incubators, on ventilators, really sick with whooping cough measles. It makes the people double down Mm -hmm. on their vaccine resistance, on their hesitancy. So I'm like, where where are we getting off thinking that facts is enough? We Mm -hmm. need to go beyond facts. Mm Storytelling is a real human thing. It connects us. And a lot of scientists and a lot of doctors need to be better storytellers. So that's what oh, I'm completely. working on. Completely. That's really cool. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your work. So you've got a book at the moment. Yes. And it's called The Impatient Dr. Langer. Yes. Did I say his name yeah, right? Yeah, you did. Okay. Perfect. So I was just reading a few of the first pages and it's just brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think it's really important to tell stories because it really helps people to understand what your motivations are that was a really hard story to tell you yeah. know that book was hard to write mm. it was a labor of love and um, the the book is a non-fiction book it's a biography about yeah. the impatient Dr. Langer who was this amazing physician he was from the Netherlands and I don't know if you remember but four years ago when the Malaysia Airlines plane got shot down mm. over the Ukraine by pro-Russian rebels mm. he was on that plane and he was on his way to the International AIDS Conference. So he was um, so mad, an, uh, you know, an older guy and he had spent his life fighting HIV. He graduated in 1981, the same summer that the epidemic started. And, you know, yeah. back when everyone was like, what is this yeah. thing making people sick? And then so, when BBC had that really crazy advert, do you remember it? Which one? Oh, the tombstones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, there's a lot of fear, right, around yeah, HIV. So much, so and much. fear came from ignorance. People didn't know and what it was. Follows. Yeah, all of that. But he, this guy, Dr. Langer, from from Amsterdam, he was just intent on fighting the epidemic and trying to help as many people as possible. And I met him because I was volunteering in HIV. I met him at this HIV conference in London mm. when I was about 17. And he struck me because he was not fuddy-duddy like a lot of the English researchers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying I hold grudges, but I do a little bit because I'm quite, I can be quite petty. Mm-hmm. But there were scientists from England back then who, you know, I was a 17-year-old. I was so interested in HIV. When I would talk to them, they would like really look down at me mm-hmm. and they wouldn't want to talk to me because they were like, who are you? You're just a child. You don't know anything. And I'd be like, can I come visit your lab? And they're like, come back when you've got a PhD. Yeah. I was like, what? There's no way to like treat a young person who has a passion. But Jupp Langer, Dr. Langer was like, yeah, come to Amsterdam. Come visit my lab. I'll show you how we research viruses. And he was just so important in the world at the time, Mm. but so down to earth and human. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I also loved about him is he had a bit of a temper and he was very, (laughs) I guess what people would call like politically incorrect. He would call people out on their crap. Whereas other scientists are like, you know, just like being so professional. But you know, back then it was normal and acceptable to say, yes, we have treatments for HIV, but Africans shouldn't have them. Africans will not take them on time and they'll become resistant. Mm. And he was like, you're racist. You're stupid. And we'll just call people out <laughs> in a way they weren't used sense. to it. And he'd yeah. be like, you know what? You're racist. You're stupid. And I'm going to do research to show you that you are racist <laughs> and stupid. Yeah, <laughs> he was great. And he would go do a massive study in like Kenya and be like, look, um, African patients in this part of the world also miss as many doses as patients in London and Amsterdam yeah. do. So the resistance, what are you talking about? Everyone should have access to medicine. Yeah. And the, the saying that he got famous in the science world okay. for was, 
If we can get a cold can of Coca-Cola to a remote village, we can get HIV medicines there. My G. So he was amazing. And he was working on a cure for the virus. I feel like I've heard that before, you know. Probably. Or I I can like see the imagery of that as well. So you know, like no one one goes into science or medicine to be like a rock star, but he was a behind the scenes rock star. He saved millions of lives. And he only probably made it to the news after he died on that plane crash. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plane attack, I should say, because it wasn't a crash. It was shot out of the air. And people knew that I knew him. So when he passed away, they were like, you should write a book about him. And I was like, no, it's too hard. That's that's too sad. It's too soon. His family were just, he had five kids. His family were completely, you can imagine, reeling from the shock. Some of them are still too scared to get on planes. Um, And I was like, I can't do it. And then a few years after the fact, I got Mm -hmm. asked again. And I said, you know what? He's passed. Mm. It was such a horrific way mm. to lose someone that you look up to. Um, what a loss. I want to extend his legacy. And I think one way of sharing the message of his life mm-hmm. and showing that you can be as impatient and cheeky and outspoken and imperfect as him yeah. and still be a pioneer and save millions of lives. One way to share that message and extend his legacy is by writing a book that tells the true story of his life. Yeah. The, you know, the, the obituaries after he passed away and The Economist and the newspapers and everything made him sound like a saint. Yeah. I'm like, I know he wasn't like <laughs> yeah. that. He made people cry because he'd get so angry and like, why aren't you working far? In his mind, nobody was working fast enough or hard enough yeah. to end the epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to share his story. I feel like so. that's such a researcher scientist thing though sometimes as well. So he was a doctor and a scientist. And one mm-hmm. of the things I found interesting when writing the book, when I interviewed people, they were like, he wasn't the best physician. Mm-hmm. People would say he wasn't the best in the lab. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he was a genius or perfect to anything, yeah. but he just went for it anyway. And when you met, when you obviously knew him, did you feel as though he had a mission in mind? Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. He, yeah. And so he, what was it that differentiated him from just your, I say your bog standard. Just your bog, <laughs> I like that, your bog standard professor. <laughs> he was human about it. Yeah. It wasn't, HIV wasn't work to him. It was life. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
to him. Mm. It, and there were sacrifices involved with that. His oh, yeah. kids didn't see him a lot. Yeah. And I wanted to say that in the book too. Like, mm. you don't, you can't have this perfect balanced life. You know you what? Can't. There's going to be times when you don't see your family a lot because you are on a mission to save the world. And, and it, these people are running from like conference to conference to different yeah. area to area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're hardly in the same place. But to me, the thing that differentiated him was he spoke his mind, he showed his heart, mm. and he was just on this mission. Mm. And it's so sad that his life got cut short in such a violent, horrific way. Yeah, yeah. Can I just say, that's what I love about your TED Talk as well, Imperfect Heroes, um, and also the way that you share your story. I think it's very important to show people the, the faceted human being that you are, um, and to show people the mistakes that you may have made along the way and also what your flaws may be because actually a lot of the times we'll see all these heroes and you'll think they were absolutely amazing they were the best at their job the best kind of doctor and it makes it feel very very inaccessible for you to oh I can't be like that I can't be like him because he was a genius actually Mm -hmm. no he wasn't he wasn't even the cleverest in his med school class no this guy just knew what he needed to get done and he wanted to affect real lives. And, you know, I, I, yeah, that's what I say in the TED Talk, that if you put someone on a pedestal, yeah. it's kind of making, it's kind of a cop-out. Because mm. it's like saying, they're so amazing. I mm. can't do what they did. Realizing that they were sometimes a bad parent, realizing that they were sometimes <laughs> a really terrible colleague. Mm. That's human. That's relatable. Yeah. So then it puts you on the hook for being as great and achieving as much <laughs> yeah. as them. So you like can't, you've got no excuse. <laughs> you can't have that cop-out. And I'm learning to do that more. There's obviously, I'm like a proud person Mm. too in some ways I don't want to share all of my failures but I now I'm learning like nope I need to tell people took me three years to do my A-levels the other day a friend said to me everything you touch turns to gold and I was like let me tell you all the things I've tried to do that (laughs) have completely flopped like you know let's be real there's no shame in it so let's talk about that that's inspiring too yeah so we've also talked about storytelling now in terms of journalism, where's your journey with journalism start and how did you kind of gain the skills to be a good journalist and a reporter? So I did a journalism program at the University of Toronto that was a year long. It was amazing. Mm. And as soon as I got out of that, I got a job offer for a newspaper reporter in Texas, the okay. Dallas Morning News. And I was like, yes, next adventure. I never thought I would live in Texas. <laughs> so moved there. And as I moved there, I did have a little bit of a, what am I doing? Because Ebola had just started spreading. What year was this? 2014. Okay. So the biggest Ebola outbreak in history is spreading in Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone. My former colleagues from the CDC are there responding as epidemic intelligence service officers. And I'm like, what am I doing? I have the training to do that. Mm -hmm. Why am I in a journalism job? And then the first ever case of Ebola arrived in the US in Dallas. No way. You're lying to me. Yeah, weeks into my first job. So I was all obviously all... So that was my first biggest... Uh, story as a reporter and I was all over it and that really boosted my journalism career because then I got hired by CNN and I was Mm -hmm. on TV all the time and I was reporting because I had that experience of being on the other side of it so I often tell like journalism students I'm meeting one later on today actually having a cup of tea on Broadway Market that it's okay to do other things before you do journalism and to get life experience that's like my little journalism piece of advice as well but that's where it started off I stayed in Dallas for about two or three years Mm -hmm. loved loved journalism so many parallels to medicine you know love storytelling love that privilege being able to enter somebody's life and share their experiences and then I needed to change a little bit so I moved to DC and then I started writing the book that we just talked about and did you always have a natural affinity for writing or was it speaking that you were better at what 
Where did you find your niche? I didn't, you know what? All my life I've said I'm not a creative person because I didn't think I was. I thought Ooh, I had more of a science like, brain. Mm. I know now I've published poems, but <laughs> no one told me I could do that. And I don't know, maybe that sounds a bit weird. Like who was going to tell me? I don't know. I think for like some people have parents who tell them you can mm. be anything you want. My mom was a single parent who had a really, really difficult childhood and upbringing. Mm-hmm. And her thing was, you're a woman, mm-hmm. you're Asian, mm-hmm. you're Muslim. Mm-hmm. The world is not your oyster. <laughs> and she was like, it's going to be really hard. Yeah, yeah, she's like, it's going to be really hard for you to do stuff. <laughs> she wasn't trying to be down. She was being very realistic. Yeah, that was her yeah. way of parenting was like, you know what? The world's not going to love you. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to work really hard. There were so many things I didn't realize that I could do, but that's why you got to try stuff, isn't it? Yeah, so you can no, find out what you, and, and that's why it's also okay to try stuff and flop and be like, mm, not for me, or okay, that didn't keep, work keep out. Keep it pushing. Keep it moving. Exactly, exactly. Dope. So if I ask you at the moment, what is it that you're most interested or what you're most excited about? Writing books. I love writing books. Do you? So the, I got really good news last night. Okay. At midnight UK time, which was terrible <laughs> timing. I have such bad jet lag. My head, I couldn't even keep my head up straight. I was like falling asleep and I got this email. Okay. And then I was so excited. So you were checking your emails at midnight as yeah. well. Okay. It's Twitter, isn't it? I'm always on Twitter. So then I see things like, ping on my phone. I should have been asleep already. I was like, no, I'll go to bed at, at midnight and then I'll have like eight hours. This email Counting comes through. Hours. Yeah, I, I love sleep. So I do count my sleep hours because it's amazing. I see this email, such an adrenaline rush. I get so excited. My friend who I'm staying with, I get her all hyper, <laughs> but neither of us can sleep. And I can't tell you all the news because I'm not allowed to announce it, but it's a book deal. No way. For a book that I did not think anyone would publish. And it's an amazing publisher, but that's all I can say. Oh, dope. Can I ask this question? And maybe you won't be able to answer it. So you've, okay, so I'll talk about your books. So obviously we've got The Impatient Dr. Langer. And then we've got Debunked. Which yes, we'll talk I'm about working on now. Working on it now. And yeah. um. The th- this book deal that they've yes. been talking to you about, is it a book Completely that you've different. Have you written parts of it? Is I've written something? parts of it, yeah. Okay. So okay. that that was, it was a proposal altogether that was being shipped around to different publishers. Mm-hmm. And because of the topic and because of kind of racism mm-hmm. in, in publishing, I'll say, mm-hmm. it wasn't getting a great response. Me and the agent kind of anticipated that. But we landed a deal with both of ours first choice. Check it out. Publisher. No so I'm so happy. Thank you. And I'm happy not on a personal level, only on a personal level. Like I'm happy for that too. But also because when I, once you find out what the book is about, you'll be like, yes, we need to tell these stories. I'm excited, you know. <laughs> oh, we need this book in the world. And I'm telling you. So I'm really, really excited about that. And have you always worked with the same agent? No. No. This okay. is a new agent, Lily Garahmani. She's amazing. Iranian woman in San Diego. And I'm really excited about that. I love writing books. Mm. And you know something? When I was a journalist, a lot of journalists write books, yeah? yeah? And so in my newsroom, there were a lot of older white men who were veteran journalists mm-hmm. who would get to that age where it's time to write a book. Yeah. They would whine about writing books so much to the point that I was like, oh, it's this really hard, torturous yeah. thing. When people would say to me, are you going to write a book? Maybe you should write a book about Ebola, blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, no, I'm too clever to write a book because I've heard it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Why would I, a smart young woman, put myself through something that sounds like yeah. torture? It was only when I wrote The Impatient Dr. Lang because I felt like I needed to write that book yeah. that I was like, really enjoy this Mm -hmm. this is such a lovely difficult challenging joyful thing to get involved with Mm -hmm. so now I'm like addicted to writing books so don't let other people define for you what a thing feels like oh completely try it yourself I know it sounds obvious but I didn't really think of Mm -hmm. that until I had to write a book and then I was like this is my thing this is my jam now I'm gonna write so many books (laughs) 
I'm working on a book of short stories. I published a poetry chat book last year mm-hmm. called For Filthy Women Who Worry About Disappointing God. And it won a poetry yeah. contest and it got published and you can buy that on Amazon too. Check it out. So don't let anyone like tell you, oh, you're a science person. You're a this person. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, use all your brain. Yeah, and people really enjoy telling you what you can do or what you should do. Yeah. And I think it's really dangerous sometimes to take on their opinion or Have you had perception. that experience too? Oh, completely. And I'll, I'll get that all through medicine. Like, I'm one of those people who kind of just enjoy every part of their job. Oh, so whether I'm doing like A&E or whether I'm doing medicine or whether I'm doing something in pediatrics, I kind of like everything. So people think I'm just like happy, go lucky when I go to work. And they'll be like, oh, no, Amelie, you should do this. Oh, no, why are you even thinking about doing that? Oh, no, because I'm really interested in research. And they're like, why would you want to do research? Right, you'll hear so many negative things. I'm trying to affect the world here. Like, my my goals are bigger than yours. Yeah, Amelie, tell them. Yeah, I think you've just got to follow what you want to do. It's hard sometimes, though, isn't it? To kind of, like, filter out that white noise, that crap. Yeah. Because you just hear it all the time. And you hear it from good people as well. Sure, they're not trying... I think sometimes people are not trying to make you fall down or stop you. It's their own issues. It's their own crap that's coming out. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be like, okay, heard what you said. It's for you. It's not for me. I want to do research. I love academia. I want to do this and that. But don't, I'm just saying that because I don't want people to feel like it's easy to filter it out, but you just have to hear it and be like, okay, that's not for me to listen to. No, totally. You've got to definitely like learn to have your own like filter in your own mind. Yeah. And I think it's difficult when you look up to your mentors. So like my dad, he's a pediatrician. He does a lot of work in sickle cell disease and he's just done the conference this week. And everyone always like come, I don't even wear my badge at the conference because I don't like people to see my surname and to be like, oh my gosh, you're Dr. Inusa's daughter. And then I start having a conversation about him and how amazing all the work he's been doing. And even when I speak to him or his colleagues, they're like, no, look, I've got this great opportunity for you in New York. Or I've got this great opportunity. Come and do this. But it's Oh my God, Amelie, do it. I'd but, do it if I had those connections. But it's it's great to have those connections and it's great to have those That's how the world around. works. Though. So if you have that, Mate, use it. It's actually very wild. And I bet you saw this in, Oxford, in Cambridge when you were there because my little sister definitely saw it in Oxford when she was there. People just working off their connections. Oh god, that's how the whole world. And it's been working like that for years. I just yeah, it's always going to work like that. (laughs) It's so much harder when you don't have that. Mm. But it's still possible. I'm still getting book deals, and I don't Mm. have no one in my family's written a freaking book. No one even reads books in my family. I mean, that's how I get away with (laughs) writing stuff that's controversial. I need my family to not suddenly start reading because my poems. I mean, they might disown me. But um, what I was also going to say is that doctors, as well, just generally don't really write books. Like maybe they write research papers, um, but actually to write a book about something a bit more creative, even someone else's biography, that is you stepping off the conveyor belt. Definitely. Got to keep stepping up. Got to keep making different turns. Just trying stuff. I do love writing. The book I'm working on now, Debunked, is looking at medical myths and pseudoscience and why those kinds of rumors spread. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Lots, it's like 70 chapters, but each chapter is really short. Okay. And answering a question like, do vaccines cause autism? <laughs> Did the American government experiment on black people who had syphilis? Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. So it's going into like conspiracy theories and I was stuff. I be like, but... <laughs> no, <laughs> yes. Yeah, right? It's a very sordid history of experimentation in medicine and public health. But yeah, I love writing books. I love being creative. I think a lot of us have it in us, but it's about time. It is about It's about time. permission. Mm-hmm. It's about what we feel we're able to do. But you know, if you have those passions, try it. I feel like your qualifications should not be a trap. Yeah. They shouldn't be a cage. Like there's so much life after the letters, but with medicine, especially <laughs> with medicine, especially you kind of get taught, okay, you have this qualification, 
this is what your life will look like now. But look at lawyers. They also have quite a vocational training. So many lawyers don't go on to practice law in the Mm -hmm. way that you think they would. They use those same skills of deliberation and argument analysis in many, many different ways. ways. Medicine's like that too. Take all the things you've learned from it and apply them in different ways if you want to. I feel like our careers get dictated to us and our qualifications should be a key to opening up the world. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be a trap the way they are in medicine right now. Completely. And this is what I've loved about every single guest that we've had on on the show so far. Everyone has just kind of done their own thing. And you might think, okay, Dr. Yasmin should just be a public health doctor. No. And she should be working (laughs) for like some governmental agencies. But actually, if you weren't doing all the work that you were doing around that, you won't be affecting lives on a on the level that you are affecting lives. And being personally fulfilled. Like I need to write poetry and I need to be a public health physician and I need to talk at conferences about epidemics. I need to talk to you about life Mm -hmm. after the letters. Like you need to have, I, for me, I need to have all those things to make my life more complete. And I think it's so important to have those intersections as well. So you were talking about communication um, and also having the medical knowledge that you do have um, and your global health knowledge as well. How have you kind of increased your knowledge over the years in terms of global health? Because you clearly haven't done it just through studying degrees. That's true. And in fact, when I applied for the epidemic intelligence service, I thought I'm not going to get in. It's too mm. competitive. They don't take many non-Americans. I applied for a master's in public health okay. at London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. And then I got into that. When I got into EIS, I was like, nope, I want to do EIS because I learn better by doing. Okay. Which is why clinical medicine was great for me because mm-hmm. I was putting into practice what I'd learned. Yeah. <laughs> I don't just like the theory. I like the doing. Yeah. And even doing journalism about public health and medicine That's really it. kept me on my toes and kept me at the forefront of the field because you're in with storage always looking for the next thing mm-hmm. you're talking to researchers and then saying what else is going to happen in your field so I've, that's the way that I really stayed on top of it and also because epidemics fascinate me so <laughs> much not just from like the microbe spreading but the weird human behaviors that help them spread, okay. the political situations that facilitate the spread of pathogens and mm-hmm. the things that cripple public health systems, all those things intrigue me. So I can't help but like stay up to date mm-hmm. with it. Do you think you could have got that same level of knowledge in the UK as you do in the US? I think so. I think it's possible to do things in so many different places and so many different ways. Are it would have been different. That just be nice or do you? No, I think it's different. Okay. So I think... The European Union has a similar thing, I think, Mm. to what the CDC has with the Epidemic Intelligence Service. I knew I wanted a bigger adventure. I wanted to go further away from home. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to the original Epidemic (laughs) Intelligence Service. You know what I mean? But I think different strokes for different folks. Like there's so many, especially with public health, there's so many different ways of doing it. Yeah. So just find what works for you. Just try stuff. One thing that I really resented, though, was in medical school. This guy came to talk to us one time and he was like an international doctor. He was working overseas and he was really trying to sell us on this career in global health. (laughs) And then at the end of the talk, we put our hands up. We're like, so how do we do it? Like, Mm -hmm. is it after F2? What do you do? And the system, you know what I mean? But the the system here for postgraduate clinical training did not build it in for you to get any international training. In America, Mm -hmm. you can do a residency program that has it built in that you go to Botswana for a few months. When I went to Botswana, I met so many American doctors. programs are amazing though. I think they might be better and just more, I mean, there's, I don't know if it's better. There's like pluses and downsides too. But it seemed like in England, if you wanted that experience, you got, you had to go do it yourself and it would count against you because then you come back and you're looking for a national training number and like it what the system wasn't designed for that so I was like I don't I just need to do my own thing so that also made me do have things changed now uh I would 
I was going to say yes, but it's only ever so slightly and it depends what you're doing. So I think things have changed in the fact that you can do, there's more part-time work available, which would allow you to do other things, but it has to be self-directed. I would say most of the training is still very linear. So if I want to do public health and I want to have a global health component, then I would either have to find myself a very specific job that they might only offer in London, number one. But number two, I might just have to go for a public health role, um, complete until consultancy, and then use my connections that I've made over the years to do lots of different things. Got it. So I think a lot of stuff, that, especially things that are global, you're still going to have to find them out yourself. Got so it. actually, it's amazing that I have these connections for, through my dad. Good. Use but them. if I didn't have those connections, I just, it'd actually be impossible, mm. or I'd have to go and find like, EIS to go down. Yeah. Yeah, it's harder. You know what? Milk those connections, Amelie, (laughs) and share them if you can. Oh, no, I do. I I totally believe in lifting as you climb. Like, take everyone, take your community with you, help people out as much as you can. Be like, oh, I met this person. You need to connect with them. They can help you in this way. Totally. Don't be like, please don't be like, oh, I can't use that. That's not how I want to do it. Not at all. Not at all. Good. No, that's me. I just want to bring my friends on the ride. Yes, you have to. And Otherwise, what's the point? You'll be so lonely at the top. <laughs> I'll take everyone with you. You want to see yes, everyone drive. Top, guys. Definitely. No, it's really cool. And so obviously you also have been teaching throughout your teaching. time. <laughs> yeah. Have you always been teaching formally or have you also done it in formal settings? Do you know what happened is when I finished journalism school and I got offered that job at the okay. newspaper in Dallas, the newspaper said, we want to hire you because we want a subject matter expert in the newsroom, someone who can be a journalist and knows how to write, but someone who <laughs> has this um, expertise. And they said, we don't think we can afford you. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is employ oh, you. Sorry. I know. I would be like, I know. Sorry. I'd be like yes, no, it's true. Seat. You can't afford me. It's so <laughs> expensive. So um, we should talk about money too, because I have a lot of thoughts about money. But um, they said, so can we employ you half the week, pay mm-hmm. half your salary, and we'll max out what we can afford for that half the week? The other half of the week, we're going to arrange for the University of Texas to pay your other half the salary and you get to teach half the week. And I was like, this is the best of both worlds. So I think I was 31 at the time. I'm 36 now. I think I was 31 or 32 at the time. And I was a professor at the University of Texas. And I was like, I don't think that would have happened if I stayed in England because professor to me is like so old. But I was yeah. like a full professor at that age. And I... I like, check me out. And there was a woman there called Susan Rogers who worked at the University of Texas. Mm. She was an amazing woman and really inspiring Mm. because she really believed that I needed to be myself to do my job. She was like, please don't feel like you're a professor now and you need to dress a certain way or talk a certain way. Our students need to see someone like you with your credentials and your life experience who dresses like you because I dress so well, so fashionable. I love (laughs) Chanel. Like, let them see that you can be... She's got Chanel badge on right now. I I love this. (laughs) So she was like, we want them to see that someone can look like you and come from your background and be erudite and be a professor at Mm -hmm. that age. Age. Mm-hmm. And I love the University of Texas at Dallas. My students were amazing. I'm in touch with so many of oh, them. Amazing. They were undergrads. A lot of them were pre-med, but not all of them. And I was teaching epidemiology and public health. And that was my first formal. Oh, no, I did a bit of adjuncting before that. Okay. When I worked at the CDC. But that was my first proper kind of like a proper gig as a professor and it was so good for me because it taught me how to it was more storytelling it was still communicating mm-hmm. public health and I did not want my lectures to be crusty and yeah. boring and out of a textbook and so I had them the reading all sorts of things I think so because yeah. I, I mean my, my students still stay, stay in touch with me mm-hmm. often one emailed me yesterday to ask for career advice one Instagram Aww. private messaged me <laughs> to say that she remembers this Prada handbag I used to carry and is it for sale <laughs> 
I was like, wait, what no kind way. of inspiration am I to you, Gladys, if you're listening? <laughs> so she wants, she wants to buy that Prada handbag. So I'm like, you know, I'll be inspiring in as many ways as I can. <laughs> and if that's fashion, then yes, that too. Because like, enjoy those things. Don't feel like you can't yeah. do enjoy that part of life. If that's what you love, bring it all together. But yeah, so then I was at Stanford for the last year doing mm-hmm. a night fellowship in journalism, which was amazing. Yeah. I taught a class in global health storytelling in the med school. Oh, check it out. And that, you know what was interesting about that is these medical students and undergrads. They loved it, by the way. They were so good. I didn't know what to expect. I'm like, Stanford's proper, like, is it on a Cambridge level, right? Yes. It's a bit elite. The students there. That was are... like my dream med, like my dream <gasps> med school. So I actually you applied. Look... No way. Good for you. For, um, I don't know, even know why. I did my ACTs and my SATs. Like, Isn't it so expensive to go to a university in America? Uh, uh, uh. So like, you'd be like paying it back for the rest of your life. It's actually so wild. And then I got into, where did I get into? NYU. And Look at you, Amelie. It's because I, also, I had these dreams of like going around New York, learning. You know what? It can still happen for you. And it was so expensive. The yeah. fees were ridiculous. It's a shame, isn't it? It's crazy. It's actually impossible. Did you apply to Stanford? Yeah, I applied to Stanford. Should I come didn't get into Stanford. Should we have you I come like, give a lecture at oh Stanford? Oh my gosh, please. All right, let's arrange it. <laughs> let's arrange it. So what happened? Yeah, I was teaching this Campus global life. health. Yeah, oh gosh. It's a be- I call it an academic resort. It looks beautiful. I'm it so looks so confused. beautiful that at first I was like, is this a movie set? When I went there for my interview. When I went there <laughs> like for my interview, around. seriously, when I went there for my interview, I wasn't sure if I liked it because it was almost too pretty. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and I went there during spring break, which I didn't realize. So that it was a bit dead. I bet so and I was like, oh, no. I was like, I like campuses when they're like busy and thriving. And I didn't realize it was a quiet week that week. Um, <laughs> but you know what? There's avocado trees on campus. You can just pick yeah. your own avocados. That's wild, you know. I would get out of class and there'd be Maya lemon trees. And you just pick <laughs> your own lemons and your own oranges and your berries and pomegranates. So I'm like, what is I'm this place? Gosh. I'm going to invite you. You're going to come. Come stay with me. Come visit Stanford. Um, you will. It's amazing. So I was teaching this global health storytelling class. Okay. The medical students were really nice. They were like down to earth and humble and coachable and eager to learn. I had to get them to unlearn a lot of stuff in order to be able to tell a story again. Okay. They Can will tell me. Of, yeah. yeah. So what I would say is in the first couple of weeks was let's just look for stories. What stories might you want to share during mm. the course of this class? It culminates in them telling that story to a public audience, okay. like oral storytelling. And they came back with like written essays, some of them. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this is really good. You should publish this, publish this and jam as a piece of my mm-hmm. mind section. But this isn't storytelling. Also, it's so easy, easy to publish, but people just don't realize. We could, yeah, we talk but, about that too. But yeah. And I thought, oh, you've has medicine like kicked it out of you? Just the way to connect with another human on like just that most basic, loveliest of levels. Yeah. Like I look at the essay and be like, it's really well written, but put that away. Just talk to me. Tell me that thing that happened. And so it was a lot of going back to basics and learning the narrative arc of a story and connecting with people. And, you know, they would want to put all the facts early on. And I'd be like, it's really boring. That those facts are really boring. So we need to put them further in, like grip the audience first and then we'll share some, we'll sprinkle those facts in later. <laughs> Maybe just one or two. <laughs> in a way that's memorable, you know. So I've loved doing that and I love being at Stanford for that year. You know what happened after I finished at Stanford in June? I thought, okay, haven't got a job now. I'm going to apply for some journalism jobs. Mm-hmm. I got rejected from every single job I applied for. And I felt so crappy. Mm, I was like, but look at my CV. Like, I've got the right qualifications. Like, why am I not? I wasn't getting interviews. I'd get one interview and not get called back. I wouldn't even get a freaking email telling me that I was no longer being, I'd like find out from friends. I'm like, this is so shady. (laughs) 
And I felt so like, you start feeling worthless. Mm. And then I was like, you know what? Forget it, Seema. Don't get down by these big institutions and yeah. big news it's outlets. It's personal. It feels it though, doesn't it? It's easy yeah, to say that, Emily, because you're does. just like, they must think I'm crap. It's also because I know <laughs> I know what you have right now as well. You know. Okay, so I'm going to get there. So what happened, right? This is all happening in summer. I'm like, okay, my book's about to come out. I feel like a failure because I can't freaking land a job and I'm like 35. I thought to myself, I'm going to just freelance. I'm going to do some calculations, work out the maths of it, and I'm going to make it work. Mm-hmm. The week, the Friday of the week where I'd made this plan and Which was like... It was in July this was happening that I was, no, it was in June. It was in June. I made this plan of I need to do this many stories. I'll write this book. I'll do this. And you know what? I'm just going to hustle, work really hard. I'll make it work. That Friday, I get this email from a man I've never heard of who says, I am launching the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. I am recruiting for a director. Someone in the journalism school at Stanford said to me, don't even advertise for the job before you speak Shut to Seema. And, per- and he said, I've been told that if you want the job, I can write the job description around you. <laughs> you still have to apply. We still have to advertise. Of course, it has to go through all of that. He said, but, but you this have this. going to be your job. You have the perfect skill set for what we're looking for. Someone with medical background who has journalism background yeah. and, and experience. And teaching experience And as well. teaching experience. So I was like, what is happening? I just Mate, figured out I was going to be all right. gang signs. Honestly. I'm telling you, I just told myself I don't want a job. It's okay. I got rejected. <laughs> I'm going to freelance. This Screw everyone. And then I'm like, yes, I want this job. He was like, are you interested? I was like, yes, I'm interested. And then what I learned, because I'd taken some negotiation classes and I'm really happy to talk to people, especially women, about negotiations. So important. They offered me this mm-hmm. job, which was a freaking dream job, Amelie, at Stanford. As a director, I was like, yes. And I was like, I want a second appointment as a professor oh in the medical school. And he was like, oh, uh, that's quite difficult. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. Work that's that's what I deserve. Yeah, I need it. I need it. I'm like a great academic. I'm going to do research. I'm going to mm-hmm. be a principal investigator on trials and whatever. And I'm going to teach. And I love teaching. And it's going to happen. There you go. Yeah. Ask for it. Ask for what you, you have want. To. Exactly. In my head, I was like, oh. Well, yeah, he's going to hate yeah. me. Why am I saying these things? Stop us talking. So you must stop asking for things. And I'm so glad I just did it because it worked out. So I start January. I'm so happy. Oh, that's so great. I'm so, I'm so, so excited. I know that we could talk about loads of things. And I really wanted to talk about like negotiation. I also wanted to talk about money and like personal finances. But I just don't have enough time to I will do come that back to you. chat to you anytime about yes, money exactly. and about worth and asking for more. Yeah. Because I believe in those it's, things. Yeah, so do I. Like, I really do as well. I feel like I've found a kindred spirit, which I'm so excited oh, me about. Me too. I'm going to invite um, you to Stanford. There's a group out there called Brown Girl Surf. Okay. That takes no women way. of color out to surf. <laughs> in, Guys, around, I'll be so fair. Around the Bay Area. It's so much <laughs> fun. yay. You might not want to leave like <laughs> me. Who knows what will happen? No, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having coming. me. It's lovely chatting to you. I'm so excited that this is actually the place that you grew up. It's yeah. so cool that we're it's on back. the same freaking street, practically. Wild, isn't, isn't it? it? So, Mare Street Market, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. And Even though you're so poncy now. <laughs> <laughs> this used to be a job then. But the tea tastes are good, right? It was lovely. Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> it's hard to get a good cup of tea in America. So, thank you. Thanks, Emily. All right, guys. So, you know what to do. Listen. Share with your friends. Buy my books on Amazon. Exactly. So, her books, I'll go over them again. The Impatient Dr. Langer amazing book thank you and also debunked that's debunked. not out yet but it's, my poetry book is available when is, on when, when is it out debunked? next year next year do you know early yeah. next year later later next year okay and follow me on twitter and instagram yes. i like interacting with people so how there. do they find you on these platforms on twitter my handle is dr yasmin with the doctor spelled out 
And on Instagram, it's Dr. Seema Yasmin. Dope. I, I just have to finish it there. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, and Emily. see you guys later. Take care. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was recorded at Mare Street Market. Catch us over on www.afterthelettuscom or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.